Well, this is not going to be a lecture. I mean, I'm going to talk, <clears throat> but I hope this is the start of a conversation. So um, where are we headed today? Well, uh, first, we're going to talk about wonder, how amazing embryos are. So we're going to start with. And that's an opportunity for worship of our creator. And then after that, we're going to talk a little bit about ethics. Now, there are some trained ethicists here. Uh, I met Mark back at the food table a little earlier uh, on. Um, and uh, so I'm keenly aware that there are people with tremendous training here, but not everyone here has that kind of training. <clears throat> and so our goal is really just going to be to, um, for us to, to learn enough about some of these topics to, to talk about them a bit. All right, so um, let's begin by talking about embryo and wonder. And I need to start, because this is an SBC institution, by telling you how important the Southern Baptist Convention has been in my own life. So... Um, a little bit about me. I became a Christian in Franconia, Virginia in 1972 on February 9th at a Southern Baptist Youth Revival at Calvary Road Baptist Church. So uh, the SBC changed my life. Actually, the Lord changed my life through the FBC, SBC. And then in high school, I learned how to study the Bible and to love studying the Bible through a Southern Baptist Church, First Baptist in Springfield, Virginia. That's where I grew up. And then when I was in seminary, it was a non-denominational evangelical seminary in the International School of Theology, I was placed in a, an SBC congregation, Emmanuel Baptist Church in San Bernardino, California. So um, I've been steeped in the SBC. I, I live in a northern area where there are, well, we'll just say there are fewer SBC congregations there, but um, I'm incredibly grateful for the role that the SBC has played in my own life. And uh, so thanks to all of you for continuing that legacy. Well, uh, after seminary, I felt a strong calling to go back into academia, uh, secular academia, and my wife was in campus ministry with crew at the University of California, Berkeley, and so as we were courting between Southern and Northern California, I got to see the campus, and I enrolled in a PhD program in biophysics at UC Berkeley. And uh, I ended up working with a guy named Ray Keller. I'm the Raymond E. Keller Professor of Integrated Biology at Wisconsin now, and um, uh, Ray was studying embryos, and um, I was absolutely hooked the first time I looked at an embryo, and this is one of the, the embryos that I looked at. This is a sea urchin embryo, and watching embryonic development under the microscope completely captivated me, and I hope the uh, process of embryonic development captivates you by the time we're done. Now, um, I'm... Uh, because I study embryonic development, the people who do that are known as developmental biologists. Here's the fundamental question that we're interested in. Uh, this is a one-celled human zygote on the upper left. That's how we all started. Then some really complicated things happen, imaginatively shown by the black arrow. <laughs> and then you get something incredibly complicated. So this is my son Christopher about 30 years ago. It's hard to believe he's 30 now. And when you are a parent you really appreciate in a fresh way the amazing processes of embryonic development because they lead to these incredible intricate um, structures that, um, like the, the hand that you see with uh, Christopher is holding out, his little ears, these processes are reproducible and they're complicated. But they, they lead to amazement, I think. Everybody who's held a, a baby in their arms understands that to some extent. And when you stop to think about it, um, the processes really are staggeringly complicated. 
That one cell eventually proliferates uh, by the time a baby is born into five trillion cells. That's a big number. The cells are specialized. There are many differentiated cell types that are special. And uh, not only are they specialized, but, but they move in intricate ways as well. I teach a, an undergraduate course in embryonic development. And on the first day of class, I tell the students that we've been thinking about this for a long time. And I quote from a piece of Hebrew poetry written by a guy named David. You, you may have heard of him. And, um, but a lot of my students have not. Um, and uh, it's Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give uh, thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, and I was made in secret. I was skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The psalmist is musing on everyday experience about embryonic development, isn't he? He knows something's happening uh, to form humans. So, for example, uh, this word inward parts, what's the word for kidneys, the innermost parts of a human in uh, Semitic thinking? Um, uh, Kilia. And um, not only that, but he understands that there's some sort of process here. Let me just highlight a couple of other words here um, from the Hebrew. Uh, that word for skillfully wrought, rakam, that has the notion of, of, of weaving in other places, like the tapestry uh, in the tabernacle, for example. Um, and uh, unformed substance, well, that's golem. I think J.R.R. Tolkien knew something about that. That's maybe why Gollum, the character in the Ring trilogy, has that name. So he understands that there's something going on, something without form becomes formed, and Yahweh is doing this. And he's musing about his own development here. And of course, if you know Psalm 139, you know that it's about God's omnipresence. For as long as David has been alive, the psalmist has been alive, God has been there even while he was an embryo. And um, so uh, this notion of wonder is a profoundly Christian idea as it's applied to embryos. So what are some big questions in embryonic uh, the, the developmental biologists who study embryonic development are interested in addressing? Well, um, one is um, differentiation. How do parts become different? Not everything is an ear or an eye. I'm sounding like the Apostle Paul now for a moment, but um, you get the idea. But it's not just that you have a bunch of different parts. They have to be constructed properly. And that's the subject of morphogenesis, the development of form from the Greek word morphe for form. So those two ideas are the two really big ideas in developmental biology. And we've learned a lot about this. And suffice it to say that I'm going to massively oversimplify. One of the things that's involved in differentiation is that genes have to be expressed. These genes provide the information to make proteins. And the different proteins that different cells make makes them different. And uh, what we know is that the process by which genes are switched on and off is sort of like a set of genetic switches. Some are switched on, others are switched off. And it's the combination of the switching on and switching off of different genes as they are expressed that leads to these differences in parts. And we know that those differences uh, reflect 
uh, the deep embedment of these processes in the history of life on this planet. So if you compare a fruit fly on the top with a mammal, a mouse on the bottom, they're making a set of these proteins that act like genetic switches called homeotic genes, and they control the identity of cells from the uh, head to the tail in both cases. And so this deep sharing of these processes from things like fruit flies or the little worms that I happen to study to mammals is part of uh, a set of highly conserved processes that we've learned about through uh, scientific investigation. Well, that's differentiation, but you know, it's not enough. You've got to construct an embryo. And I can use a metaphor for this. So um, you know, I'm a parent. I have two boys. My older son, John, loved to play with Duplo and then Lego blocks. And um, unfortunately, most of the time, they are mixed up, like you see on the upper left, in a mess. And we have to sort through them. Now, if you've looked at Lego blocks, you know different blocks are different. There's different colors. There's different shaped blocks. Some of them have little eyes on them because they're part of a kit to make a creature, um, all of that kind of thing. But those disassembled parts do not make a structure, do they? No, you have to assemble it like you see on the lower right. And that's morphogenesis. The difference is, with Lego building blocks, a human is involved in assembling the structure. In an embryo, the cells of the embryo assemble themselves to change the shape of the embryo. So those are the two big ideas. And let's take a quick tour of human development. It'll help bring out a few vocabulary words that'll be useful in the rest of what I have to say. Uh, and uh, this whirlwind tour is going to be just that. Uh, and so uh, as I said, we all start as one-celled zygotes. But then some really complicated things happen. We go from one to four to many cells to something that looks like a burrito to um, uh, a human embryo that clearly has organ systems. And there's my son Christopher again on the lower right. These processes are intrinsic to the embryo. And it starts with fertilization. When an oocyte, an egg, is fertilized, this initiates a tremendous set of physiological changes in the one-celled zygote, the fertilized egg. This wakens the embryo from its sleep, sort of like Sleeping Beauty being kissed by Prince Charming. And uh, ultimately, this leads to uh, uh, the one-celled zygote. But I want to point out something about this. You may not know this, but there's a tremendous um, contingency in this process. In, in the typical case, and most of us are typical in this room, uh, a single sperm has a 1 in 250 million chance of fertilizing an oocyte. So the processes that led to each of us, as the psalmist was musing about, are incredibly contingent on a specific sperm uniting with an oocyte. And yet through God's providence, he knows this all about each one of us. Well, after fertilization, as I said, we get a one-celled zygote, and you see the genetic material, the round blobs here in the middle, have come to meet in the middle of this one-celled zygote. And already, physiological changes are happening in this new human organism. It has the entire genetic complement needed to form a complete, more fully developed human at this stage. And it's the unfolding of the potential within the zygote that leads to a human being. So this is a, a human being. It's a zygote with a full complement of DNA. But it's the processes that lead to the complexification 
of this embryo that biologists like me are interested in. All right, so uh, this is called a zygote, but after this stage, the zygote begins to divide, and th that process is called cleavage. It happens in the fallopian tube if you were produced in the normal way, the old-fashioned way, and um, this is a four-cell human zygote moving down the fallopian tube, and you can see there are already four cells there. And uh, these early divisions are called cleavage divisions. All right, this is a mouse embryo. It looks geometrically very similar to a human embryo at this stage. And let's run this movie forward to give you an idea of what's going on. So you can see there's one to two, then two to four, and then four cells become eight. And then partway through the eight cell stage, the cells uh, become very sticky, and uh, you can no longer make them out. And then by the end of this movie, the embryo inflates because fluid is pumped into the middle to form a structure called a blastocyst. Here it comes one more time. There it is. And that blastocyst has specialized cells at one end called an inner cell mass. You can see them on the upper right in this image of a, this is a human embryo at the blastocyst stage. And it's those cells at the top that make a baby. So you came from your inner cell mass cells when you were an embryo. Uh, this inner cell mass contains uh, cells that have very special properties. They're very developmentally flexible, as we'll see. The cells around the outside form things like the placenta and the accessory structures that are needed for life in the womb. Well, after that, cells continue dividing. Then they start moving in a process known as gastrulation, which builds the body plan of the embryo. And we all looked like this at the gastrulus stage. So there's a membrane that's been removed so that you can see the embryo, which is a flat disc. And you can see that there's a little streak, a little line running from top to bottom of the screen there. That's called the primitive streak. And cells move towards that, and they move into the inside of the embryo to make structures within the body. The processes of gastrulation are an incredibly complicated choreography of cellular dance movements. And you can see that by studying simpler vertebrate embryos. My PhD advisor at Berkeley, Ray Keller, studied frog embryos, and here's a movie from Ray's lab. That little smudge at the top there is a site where cells are moving into the interior of the embryo, and here they go. You can see all kinds of crazy things are happening. And uh, cells are moving towards the bottom of the screen, and the whole embryo gets longer top to bottom, sort of more football-shaped by, by the end of this. And that's because the basic body plan is emerging during this process. Now, mammals gastrolate too. You did. You were a gastrula. And here are some mouse embryos that have been genetically engineered to follow specific groups of cells in pink or green, depending on the embryo. So let me run this forward. And you'll see that the embryos get longer, um, the pink cells form a streak, that's the primitive streak, that gets very much longer during this process as the basic body plan of the, these mouse embryos emerges. So that's what my lab studies, is actually how do cells know to do all of this? And we're learning some answers. I'll just say it's complicated. <laughs> all right, so after gastrulation, uh, the next thing that happens is the formation of the central nervous system. And so here is a human embryo at this stage called the neurulus stage. And during this process of neurulation, the embryonic spinal cord forms by rolling a flat sheet up into a tube. And that flat sheet, as it rolls up into a tube, forms what will become the spinal cord. So all of you looked like a burrito at one stage in your development. Probably don't have desktop photographs of your burrito-ness, but um, 
That's how all of us develop. And you can see that if we go back to amphibian embryos. Here are some salamander embryos doing neurulation. So let me run this forward, and you can see that the flat sheet rolls up into a keyhole-type shape, and then eventually it seals over cells in the interior. And by the end of this, from top to bottom, you have something that's beginning to look like it might become a salamander. So that's the process of neurulation, and you did something fairly similar as your nervous system was forming. Well, after that, organ systems become apparent, uh, limbs develop. Uh, you can see here in this um, uh, embryo that the uh, eyes are, are visible. Uh, uh, digits are beginning to form on the forelimbs, the arms. Um, and all of these continuing processes of differentiation and morphogenesis build the embryo. If you didn't think what we just talked about was cool, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Sorry. These processes are amazing, right? And I, I have the privilege of studying these processes in my laboratory, and I'm like a kid in a candy store perpetually. Now, I'm not married to a scientist. My wife's name is Susie. Hi, Susie. And uh, she's the practical theologian in the household. And at this point, she would protest, well, science is great, but hey, wait a minute, life's a miracle. And I don't want to take away from the amazing, providentially designed um, process by which each one of us in this room came to be. In fact, I'd argue that science helps us to appreciate this more deeply. And I couldn't put it better than a 19th century Anglican theologian, Charles Kingsley. Uh, and he said it this way, are we to reverence him less or more if we hear that his might is greater, his wisdom deeper than we ever dreamed? We knew of old that God was so wise that he could make all things, but behold, he's so much wiser than even that, that he can make all things make themselves. Now, Kingsley was talking about how God is working over geological history to produce living things, but the same is true of embryonic development. Uh, the processes of embryonic development are an embryo making itself, and all of this is something that we get to discover, but God knew from the beginning. Not only that, but as Christians, we can affirm something more, and that is that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took up into the divine life the processes of embryonic development. Of course, we say that in the Apostles' Creed, in, in those churches where we recite the Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But when we think about what we now know about embryonic development, this puts us into much sharper perspective. What Christ shares with us in his humanness. The poet Lucy Shaw said it this way. After the bright beam of Annunciation fused heaven with dark earth, his searing, sharply focused light went out for a while. Eclipsed in amniotic gloom, his cool immensity of splendor, his universal grace, small folded in a warm, dim, female space. Jesus has undergone the same path of embryonic development in his human nature as we have. And that dignifies the processes of embryonic development and our study of it in a way that I think only Christians can really appreciate. All right, so that's the wonder side. Let's do a little bit of thinking about embryos and ethics, shall we? I'm going to use three examples to talk about this. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited to be at a seminary because um, seminaries are crucially important in helping the church to wrestle 
with difficult concepts and to bring biblical faith to bear on those uh, issues. Why should Christian respond? Well, uh, in, in terms of biology, this is often called the century of biology. The pace of change has been staggering, and we'll talk more about some additional changes that are coming tonight, if, if you can join us. And that means that it's likely that many people here, your loved ones, or others that you know, will have to decide about ethically challenging therapies and whether they are permissible from a Christian perspective. Not only that, but I, I live in a non-Christian environment day to day. So I especially think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount calling us in Matthew 5 to be the salt of the earth. How can we be salty in an era of biotechnology? That's a pastoral concern. Nigel Cameron, who for many years was the director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, which is affiliated with Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up closer to me, said this in an interview in Frontline in 1997, and it is still true. What worries me is I meet religious people who've been through these procedures without a moral thought. And that's true. And we need to help the church do that. Think about it carefully. Well, does biology help us define when we have an ethical obligation towards a human being? Well, let's think about it. What did we already talk about? Well, if you were listening, you'll remember that life is an unfolding developmental process starting with a fertilized egg, a zygote, and leading to something really complicated at the end of the process. A human being begins its life, his or her life, as a one-celled zygote. So human, a human being is present from that time on. And the problem is, with uh, trying to identify later dividing lines, or we might say that we have a moral obligation towards a human, frankly, is that at each of those stages, where we might define a set of properties that would be associated with a human embryo that would give us an um, ethical responsibility towards it, uh, the problem is that we know because of this continuous process of development that the embryo is in a different place from, some other, from human organisms at other stages in their development, and that is that it may, not have, it may not have expressed a particular set of characteristics like a central nervous system, but during the unfolding of developmental processes, uh, that potentiality will become actualized. So from a biological perspective, we can say that the upper left is a clear dividing line, but trying to find other dividing lines is going to be difficult and is beset with other problems about what happens at the end of life and a number of other issues. The Ramsey Colloquium um, said it this way, the embryo is human. Any being that's human is a human being. Now, if it's objected that at five days or 15 days, the embryo does not look like a human being, it must be pointed out that this is precisely what a human being looks like and what each of us looked like at five or 15 days of development. We all looked like a burrito. It's true. So looks can be deceiving depending on how we're conditioned to think about human organisms. And that means that we're going to have to look towards other sources of meaning and to define um, what we mean by a human person or ideas like that. And uh, one obvious source of inspiration might be the Bible. Um, uh, respected geneticist, uh, Elving Anderson from University of Minnesota said it this way, what inner resources will individuals have for coping with future discoveries? 
It's sometimes claimed that questions of the future will be so unique that, quote, old values, unquote, will be inadequate, but I've not found any basic questions that will not profit for consideration of a biblical perspective. So let's very, very briefly think together about what the Bible seems to be saying about all of this. Well, first, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we are declared image bearers, and there's a lot to unpack there theologically, and I'm not going to do it. But in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, uh, and then later we, we see this uh, imaging um, phraseology appearing after the Noah flood narrative uh, in, in Genesis chapter 9. Um, we are declared image bearers, image bearers of the king. Not only that, but of course we're uh, set up as stewards, and I would argue that stewardship in the modern era involves stewarding of technology, including technology applied to ourselves. Uh, of course, procreation in a biblical perspective is to be done in one flesh relationships. And children are considered, as we know from Psalm 127, that whole metaphor about quivers being full and that sort of thing, that children are begotten gifts. They are not things to be manipulated. They're gifts from God. And uh, in particular, the weak deserve special consideration, and that's replete in the Old Testament, as many of us will know. Um, not only that, but uh, there's continuity of the embryo and adult. We saw that in Psalm 139, and these passages in which God seems to call out the prophets from before the, the time they were born also implies continuity of the embryo and the adult. And uh, embryos are included as part of God's plan through these kinds of callings. And nowhere is that uh, more evident than in the um, Luca narrative in the New Testament, where you have this whole John the Baptist, Jesus leaping around in the womb thing, right? So um, it's clear that the Bible sees personal identities being resident in embryonic humans. So is the, is the embryo an image bearer? Well, um, the evidence seems to speak in favor of this, but we, we also have to acknowledge that the Bible is a pre-scientific document. And that means the Bible knows nothing about pre-implantation human embryos or blastocysts. So its language really doesn't give us the precision that we would, uh, or the certainty that we would like. And I think as a result of this, sincere Christians who are trying to be faithful to the biblical witness disagree about uh, the dis disposition of, of human embryos. We need to acknowledge that. I'll give you my take in, in a minute. Most Christians would agree, at least with the following statement, that uh, such passages may not establish exactly when human life begins. They're not really talking about life, but about um, the identity of human embryos, but they establish God's care and involvement from the very beginning. I think we can all agree with that. So many Christians, uh, even if they have uncertainty about how to mesh the science and the biblical witness, would agree with Gil Mylander, who said it this way. If we're genuinely baffled about how best to describe the moral status of that human subject who's the unimplanted embryo, we should not go forward in a way that peculiarly combines metaphysical bewilderment with practical certitude by approving even limited use for exper experimental purposes. In other words, Mylander's saying, hey, if we're not sure, we should exercise the utmost caution. We just shouldn't go there. 
Now, uh, recently, I've been doing some research for a book project, and uh, I have been discovering something that I missed in my seminary education. I missed a course, the first church history course uh, at seminary, because I crammed uh, three years into two, doing Greek and Hebrew simultaneously. It was kind of a mess. But um, at any rate, I didn't take the, the church history uh, semester where you dealt with patristics. You know what? Those guys were smart. And um, they thought a lot about incarnation and uh, the incarnation of Jesus, the, uh, the second person of the Trinity, and what that might mean for all humans. And uh, let me recommend some books. Um, this is a great book by Callum McKellar, The Image of God, Personhood, and the Embryo. The kind of the, the, the one that, that maybe... Um, deals with this in most uh, detail is The Soul of the Embryo by David Jones, particularly chapter nine is just great. And then um, uh, analytic theologian Oliver Crisp has a, a chapter in a book that he wrote called God Incarnate. That's a scary cover to me, but, um, <laughs> but uh, the chapter is called Christ and the Embryo. And uh, we've got a bunch of theologians in the room far more qualified than I am, but I, I know enough to um, think that this is worth pondering. Uh, what about the incarnation? Well, um, you know, the Chalcedonian formulation of the hypostatic union, if you've got an MDiv, you just like to say that because it impresses your friends at parties or something. But, but the hypostatic union argues that Jesus had an essential human nature from his conception, by the way it's formulated. It talks about his rational soul, for example. In other views, like St. Thomas Aquinas thought that Jesus was kind of poofed into existence as a more fully formed fetus for reasons he had about his uh, Aristotelian philosophy, but they, well, they seem a little weird. Um, and uh, not only that, but Oliver Crispus said, you know, if we, if we add a, a divine nature t later to a human embryo, that's kind of a delayed Apollinarianism in which we have um, Jesus' divine nature being added in to someone who is already human. That's a problem from Orthodox Christology. Um, and uh, Besides which, Hebrews chapter 4 says Jesus has experienced all things that we have, yet without sin, we, we know that. So maybe it makes most sense to think that Jesus and we get our start as moral entities at conception. And so uh, that's what I would argue. Now, I, I will say, if you're a physicalist, there's some issues. Well, the incarnation is an issue, maybe, but um, it, it's challenging. It's possible, but challenging to think about that. So there are for those of you in the room who think about personal ontology, there's some issues maybe. I'm still thinking through these. Maybe you can help me. All right, further reasons for reluctance. Well, uh, we are limited. You know, Genesis 2 happens before the fall. And um, Genesis 2 uh, is already placing restraints on human knowledge before the fall. Humans are limited. But of course, after the fall, things get even worse. We are all fallen sinful creatures which necessitated Christ dying for us. Christians are the only ones who can take that seriously, human sinfulness. So this leads us to a balancing act, I think. First of all, um, we, uh, we should seek to use technology for, for human good. That's beneficence. But uh, we should seek to treat the embryo as a patient, an end in itself, a begotten gift, as I've said, at all stages of development. And um, we should also be wary of technological optimism, which is rampant in our society, frankly. 
And the problem is those three bullet points actually are intention. So um, we need to recognize that that's going to be true, and it's going to make this a messy discussion. Ready? All right. Let's look at some examples. Examples. The first is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. All right. Um, and to start the discussion of why we can even do this, I want to go back to a 19th century embryologist named Hans Triesch. Actually gave a Gifford lecture later in his life. Uh, Triesch was an embryologist working with sea urchin embryos, that, that blue embryo that I showed at the beginning of my talk. And what he did was the following experiment. He took a four-cell sea urchin embryo, and if you remove calcium from the seawater, the cells will fall apart. Then you can add calcium ions back in and you'll get embryonic development. Um, and not only that, but to Driesch's consternation, he got four little miniature, perfectly proportioned sea urchin larvae, those little spaceship things in the bottom of this diagram. This blew Driesch's mind. In fact, he was so flummoxed by this, and he was convinced no biologist would ever be able to understand this, that he actually became a philosopher. <laughs> it's true, he became a vitalist philosopher. And, um, and uh, what this says is that when you change the conditions in early embryos in the, in the branch of the tree of life that humans are a part of, the cells respond to those changes in conditions and figure it out. And they can make a well-proportioned normal embryo even when they have fewer than the normal number of cells. They don't make, these embryos don't make one quarter of an embryo, they make a single harmoniously proportioned embryo. And the same is true for us. So here's a beautiful picture of some uh, monozygotic twin girls. We sometimes call them identical twins. They're not identical. But they came from the splitting of an early embryo. And after that splitting, you get harmonious development, as these girls certainly are harmonious. So this is true for humans. And in fact, this is the basis for a technique. You can take a, an eight-cell embryo before it's gotten all sticky, and you can slurp off one of the cells. This is how the technique was originally done. The remaining seven-eighths of the embryo will develop and make a baby. Meanwhile, you can take that cell that you've removed, genetically test it, this was how the original procedure worked, and determine if the embryo had a particular genetic constitution. This is called pre-implantation genetic <coughs> diagnosis. Now, in the modern era, it's done more safely in the following way. Um, whoops. Uh, and that is that part of the embryo that doesn't make the baby, the outside of the embryo, is slurped off and genetically tested. The rest of the embryo is perfectly fine and will develop normally, can actually be frozen while uh, the genetic testing is done. Then the embryo can be thawed and implanted in uh, a, a woman's uterus. And um, so this is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So based on what we said before, how should we think about this? Well, it's hard, but here are some guidelines. Is it good or bad? The intent is great. The intent is to determine whether an embryo has an appropriate genetic constitution, that if that embryo survives, it will live and flourish, as opposed to a debilitating genetic disorder. That's a good motivation. Uh, most people, however, would feel that other uses are inappropriate. This is used for sex selection in India and China in particular. To mostly to select for males the presence of a Y chromosome. Most of us in the U.S. would consider this inappropriate, no matter what our faith commitments. 
the other issue uh, for, for Christians, I think, is that PGD typically involves the intentional destruction of an embryo. And uh, uh, those are embryos that have an unfavorable genotype. Now, it's possible you could use this technology as a diagnostic tool for a therapeutic intervention on the embryo, but that's not normally how it's done. Normally, the embryos that have the incorrect genotype, genetic constitution, are discarded. And that intentional destruction of an embryo is hugely problematic ethically. So alternatives would be preferable for sure. And there is an alternative, and it works something like this. Uh, it turns out that when an egg divides, prior to being fertilized, it's just an egg, the last division creates uh, a little nubbin on the outside of the embryo that contains genetic material called a polar body. And then the, most of the juice, the cytoplasm, is inherited by the, the egg cell, the big cell in this picture. You can slurp off that polar body and genetically test it, and based on, on its genetic constitution, you can infer whether the, uh, the egg carries the right kind, flavors of genes. Then if, if, if uh, in vitro fertilization is something that is, is appropriate, and, and we might not all agree on that in this room, but if you do, think that's appropriate. Then you could fertilize the oocyte um, and uh, uh, allow the, the zygote to develop. If the egg has the wrong genetic constitution, it's not an embryo, it's an egg. And an egg is not a human uh, organism capable of uh, directing its own development. And so the ethical problems would seem not to be there in this case. Uh, and it's preferable to the other ways of doing this technology, which involved embryo destruction. Now, the problem here is this is rarely practiced, but, but it is an option. Now, uh, even if we had reliable ways to do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis um, at this stage before we even have an embryo, there are other issues in play, and that is, how do we define the genetic value of individuals in our society? And I've thought about that a lot. Uh, this is my son, Christopher. Christopher is profoundly autistic. He lives at home with us. And there's clearly a genetic component to autism. It's not the only component, but it's a strong one. And my wife Susie and I have thought a lot about if we'd had a test that would detect uh, Christopher's uh, tendency to, to become an autistic person, what would we have done about that? And I have to say, uh, his name is Christopher. That means um, Christ bearer from the Greek. He has been a bearer of Christ to us in ways that we never would have imagined. And so in the Christian community, we need to think differently about genetic value, even when we have a technology that's kind of morally acceptable. All right. Things get weirder from here. Uh, example number two is um, something called chimeric embryos. Chimeric embryos, what are they? Glad you asked. All right, um, you can do the following experiment with mice, with mouse embryos. On the left are three embryos at the eight cell stage before they get all sticky. You can put them together, touching one another, and when they produce the sticky molecules that allow those cells to adhere to one another really tightly, they will form a single embryo, whereas there were three previously. So here are embryos one, two, and three. In the middle is a single uh, compacted embryo with three times the, the normal number of cells. It's got 24 cells instead of eight. And then 
Uh, actually, it's undergone a couple of divisions. And then on the right is a blastocyst. The inner cell mass has an excess number of cells, but the embryo figures it out. And later, here's what you get. The three colored mice on the top are mice that have the same genetic constitution as the three embryos on the previous slide. When those are combined, some of the cells in the later embryo come from the three different genetic constitutions that form the hair follicles. So you get a mixture of hair colors. That's a chimeric embryo on the bottom. So this is mind-blowing, okay? This is, wow. Um, now, uh, all this speaks to is the incredible malleability of the early embryo. And if it works in a mouse, biologists have shown most of the time it will work in primates, including us. To show you what happens in monkeys, here's a cover of the journal Cell from 2012. Chimeric monkeys, in this case, made from six different embryos glommed together. So um, this is profoundly challenging, I think, in terms of how we think about embryos. And the idea that we can combine different embryos together has been proposed as a therapeutic uh, use of chimeric technology. And uh, here's an embryo that was made from a pig, mostly from a pig. That's the, most of the embryo colored white or pink here. And then the red cells here were introduced by Carlos Esposua Belmonte's lab into a pig blastocyst. These are human embryonic stem cells. The, so the red cells are human cells. Now, why would you even think about doing this? Sounds a bit like the island of Dr. Moreau or something from H.G. Wells, doesn't it? Well, uh, there, there is some reasonable thinking about this. First of all, if the, if the pigs are um, uh, genetically engineered so that they don't reject the, the human cells when they get to be piglets, um, and then we genetically engineer the pigs so they can't make a particular organ, the idea would be if we add the human cells, they would colonize that part of the pig make that organ, but now it would be composed of human cells. So the idea behind some of these experiments, ostensibly anyway, was to generate human organ rudiments that could be used in organ, human organ transplants. You could take the human tissue back out of the pig and put it into a human patient. That's, so that's the idea. And um, uh, the, you can see that actually, to some extent, this, this perhaps works. But I think, I don't know about you, I'm profoundly disturbed by these experiments. So we should seek alternatives. So, um, uh, to these kinds of experiments. So, um, just to show you that uh, not all scientists are perhaps doing things in a way that would, you would feel comfortable with. You can see there's no brain cells generated by the human tissue in this particular embryo. The Ispasuo Belmonte lab, in conjunction with some Chinese scientists, has been experimenting with monkey and human embryos. So uh, human monkey chimeras have been developed in China. We should be disturbed by this. We should argue that we should seek alternative technologies. So chimeras, good or bad? Maybe the good or bad question is easier. Um, uh, even the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in 2005 said these kinds of studies could produce creatures which, uh, in which the lines between human and non-human primates are blurred, a development that could threaten to undermine human dignity. Well put. 
These are not theists making these claims. This is especially problematic if any of the human tissues get into the brain of the uh, host embryo. What are, what are we doing then? So um, theologically, the most important reason for not doing this is that we are image bearers. We are unique in this sense. We should not be mixing with non-image bearers. And that means alternatives should be sought. And one alternative is to make something called an organoid, which I'll talk about in the next section. Okay, finally, last example, human embryonic stem cells. We've all heard about these, but some of us are a little fuzzy on where they come from and what they are. Let's try to clear away some of the fuzz. Now, Jamie Thompson at University of Wisconsin developed the culture techniques to make human embryonic stem cells, and he said this in a 2007 interview in the New York Times. If human embryonic stem cell research does not make you at least a little bit uncomfortable, you've not thought about it enough. He is thoughtful, I'll tell you that. He's made a different choice from the one I would make, but a very thoughtful man. All right, so what are stem cells? Stem cells divide, and they can do one of two things. They can make more of themselves, or some of their daughters that they spit out can become more specialized or differentiate. And so uh, a particular kind of stem cell called a pluripotent stem cell is um, one that can form any cell of the body. So uh, pluripotent stem cells are potentially useful because they're so flexible. So we could coax them to make any kind of differentiated tissue and use that to replace damaged tissue in a patient. That would be the idea. The problem, of course, is where these cells come from. Human embryonic stem cells come from the inner cell mass of a human embryo. An antibody is applied that destroys the outside of the embryo. The outer cells fall away. The inner cells are cultured in a dish, and they become pluripotent stem cells. So uh, they're great because they're so flexible, but this always involves destroying a human embryo to make stem cells in this way. That is problematic. So embryonic stem cells, so let's do the good or bad thing again. Well, um, they could be great because of the, their flexibility and the potential for using them in um, clinical settings but it always involves the intentional destruction of an embryo. So from my perspective, alternatives are always desirable here. Well, there is an alternative. There's some debate as to whether it's exactly the same and interchangeable with embryonic stem cells, but it's due to this man, Shinya Yamanaka, who shared a Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking work. Yamanaka looked at the different proteins that these embryonic stem cells in mice were making, and he figured out what they were. Then he said, gee, I wonder if we add those proteins to a specialized cell, can we make it forget its specialization and become one of these pluripotent flexible cells again? And he did just that. He took these four proteins, which are now called Yamanaka factors, and how he did it is beyond what we want to talk about. But he added these to skin cells, and sure enough, he could make them become pluripotent cells. They were induced pluripotent cells. And so these stem cells that result are called induced pluripotent or IPS cells. And they have the flexibility that embryonic stem cells have. They can be coaxed to make differentiated cell types. And what's more, if we use your skin to do this, they would be exactly matched to your genotype, your genetic constitution. Super useful. And there's a lot of hope that this technology will be used in therapies to replace damaged tissues in human patients. But... FYI, 
They are really flexible. How flexible, you ask? Well, uh, induced pluripotent cells and embryonic stem cells can both be coaxed to make eggs and oocytes capable of being fertilized. Sperm and eggs, they're just specialized cells. Now, they're super special. And, and uh, biologists figured out how to do this. And um, so this raises all kinds of ethical concerns, I think. All right. Finally, um, if you put a bunch of these pluripotent cells together and you give them the right cocktail of growth-promoting substances, they will self-organize in amazing ways. These self-organized structures are called organoids. Here's an example from mouse uh, I think these are mouse. I don't think they're human. But you can see this looks an awful lot like a brain if you're looking at brains. This is called a cerebral organoid. The cells self-organize to make um, something that looks an awful lot like a brain. Wow. So uh, the self-organization capability is absolutely remarkable. And if you use a different set of substances in the growth medium, the self-organizing structures that you get look remarkably like embryos. So these are called, and they undergo gastrulation, so they're called gastroloids. So here are a couple of examples of gastroloids. Uh, this, is, this looks just like a mouse embryo on the left. You may, it, um, it has a little bit different geometry at that stage of its development than a human. Um, this embryo on the right looks an awful lot like something that's elongating its body axis, um, which is what you get normally during gastrulation. Now, people have been using human cells to make these kinds of gastroloids. And a group at the University of Michigan realized, whoa, they're doing some amazing things here. And they were troubled by this. Um, and uh, so uh, in, in 2017, um, one of the investigators from this team at Michigan said this, we, we have to be careful using the term synthetic human embryo because some people are not happy about it. <laughs> no kidding. They were troubled by this, and they did not let the gastroloids survive, um, but they realized, wow, we're going into territory, we're just not sure what we're doing here. And that's troubling, I think. And uh, in fact, some avant-garde biologists are suggesting, well, we want those gastroloids to be the most similar possible to human embryos. Why? Because then they're truly useful for figuring out how human embryos actually work. But the more similar they are, the more troubling this is. So um, George Church, who I'll mention tonight in my talk, on genome editing has said that these are the off-road vehicles of embryonic development. Um, and so we might have to think about um, different ways of, of uh, how long we should allow them to survive in culture. The standard with um, human embryos in culture is 14 days, after which uh, the embryos are destroyed. That's ethically problematic in and of itself. But then he's suggesting, well, maybe we should let them go longer. Um, the future is going to be complicated. Well, what have we said today? First, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and our souls knows it, know it very well. The process of embryonic development are God-given, and I have the privilege of studying them. But the very same basic science that scientists like me have employed in unlocking the secrets of the embryo have allowed technological approaches to human cells and human embryos that are deeply problematic and troubling, and we all need to be informed. So my first charge to you is be informed. You can do this. It's not that difficult. You just need to find good popular treatments of this topic. You can do it. 
Secondly, be critical thinkers. We live in an era of technological optimism in the United States. We have a lot of dystopian novels and movies, but like our actual applications of technology are very optimistic. So be critical about these technologies. And third, as you dialogue with people out there, outside of Southeastern, be loving advocates. Uh, the, the culture war kind of language is useful in certain contexts, but I would argue it doesn't invite people into dialogue, and where I am as an, as an embedded Christian in a secular university, I need to develop ways to have winsome dialogue, and I hope you can too. And then finally, this is my charge to all of you. I am not one of these, but you all are pastor theologians. You are helping to train the next generation of church leaders. And the uh, most prevalent authority figure uh, that uh, Christians ask about these technologies is not a scientist. It's their pastor. So you need to equip pastors to think well about these issues. And I'm confident that places like Southeastern can do just that. All right, thank you very much. Happy to open it up for some questions. All right, for your question, Emily has a mic, and so raise your hand so that you can let her know you have a question. If you have a question, raise your hand at this time, and uh, we will entertain that. Just say your first name and then give your question. Yes, you go, Kyle. So this honestly might be a stupid question. There's no stupid <laughs> questions. I just want to take that back. <laughs> I'll take it back. Okay, I'll take it back. It might be a. Uh, I'm Kyle. Hi, Kyle. It might be a highly uninformed question, and okay. your answer might be that never happened. Okay. Um, but uh, I remember reading something, and this was back in 2013, 2014, about a lab, I think in Seattle, that um, announced that it had developed a way to extract embryonic stem cells without destroying the embryo. Um, do you know anything about that? Has that gone anywhere? Because um, it seems. From the ethical perspective of this, seems really significant. Um, it is possible to remove single or small numbers of ES cells from a blastocyst, and the remainder, at least in mouse embryos, will develop properly. I think that kind of embryonic biopsy has not really been pursued very much because of iPS cells, and because most of the scientists don't have any ethical qualms about destroying actual human embryos to make ES cells. Um, uh, I don't think anyone is, it would basically be an experiment, right, unless there were some strong clinical reason for doing it. Um, I don't think a human embryo has ever been, been implanted after that kind of a biopsy. But in theory, if you just took one or two cells away, I guess I would be okay with that. I mean, it's the equivalent of a, of a biopsy uh, in, in our bodies. Um, but... I, yeah, so you probably did hear that either that people have tried it or succeeded, and it was likely in mouse embryos or livestock embryos. Yeah, so that's not that was not an uninformed question. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Next question, uh, Dr. Lederbach, I think has a question. Jeff, let me first say thank you. That was really really helpful for us, and I think thinking about the ethical issues and how life works together 
and the moment of conception being such an important place for us to think about that. So appreciate that. I, I have many more questions that I can ask, but hopefully tonight you'll cover some of these. But I guess that kind of uh, the question I wanted to start with with you is you early in your slide, you talked about the uh, flipping of the switch, to use that metaphor, yeah. of turning on a, a genetic pattern or turning off some of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really interested in both the causality of that and then also the how do the cells, and you talk about this as your life's work, how do the cells know once the switches are flipped on or off, how they then are supposed to assemble? So I know that's very generic language for that, but as you think that through, that seems to raise so many questions about design. Um, and so I'm just curious how you how you teach on that and what are some of your thoughts, if you can do that. Yeah, well, the the... Biological mechanisms, part of the answer would, you'd have to take a course in embryonic development, but suffice it to say that there are signals that one group of cells produces that other cells respond to, and this all relies on a particular geometric arrangement of the signaling cells on the one hand and the responding cells on the other. When the cells respond, cells have a machinery, sort of like the molecular equivalent of antennae, to sense the signal that's being produced by the nearby cell. So they might spit out some protein. One of these is a protein called sonic hedgehog. Okay, it's like sonic the hedgehog, yeah. Biologists have a sense of humor occasionally. So so you need a receptor on your surface to respond to hedgehog signals. It's a combination of two proteins. And then if if you're making those, so only the cells that are making those receptors can respond, and not everyone's making them. That reflects their history. If they're making them, then they can respond to this localized production of sonic hedgehog. And this protein is very important for, for example, determining the thumb to pinky axis of your hand or the central, the, the um, nervous system tissues that form the front part or ventral part of your face for a number of different kinds of processes. So the embryo is doing this in a spiral of increasing complexification over time. So um, in terms of design, this is hard. Like embryos seem to have a telos. They have a, a, a purpose, which is a full organism, that they are striving towards, if you want to use language from the old Aristotelian teleology, or, or uh, you know, Thomistic thinkers have appropriated hylomorphic ways of thinking about embryos. If you know what that is, some of you will, but some of you won't. I, I know this guy does. Um, and... Um, So I think there's disagreement on how much embedded purpose there is or design kind of baked in between the nooks and crannies of what the cells are actually doing versus a fully physicalist kind of explanation. Not everybody agrees about that. Dreesch was a vitalist, so he thought there had to be an elan vital that was driving this, a life force that was the integrating property. He really was more like an Aristotelian. He wasn't like a full-on vitalist. But so... Um, I, I'm, I, I'm part of a group of people uh, that have been funded by the John Templeton Foundation to think more about purpose, and I would argue that embryos are a good test case because they're the most kind of goal-directed biological process we've got, and if we can understand what's going on there, then maybe we could look at other macro kinds of situations and discern purpose there as well. And as a theist, of course, I would say that's part of God's design for his, his creatures, yeah. Time for one more question, if there is one. Yes, up here at the front. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Can I just go? Uh, no, we're, we're recording your question, so, yeah. 
I'm Joseph. And I recently heard there is actually Chimera human, who has two kinds of DNA. Yep. And it's possible like even three DNAs in one person. And yep. as soon as I heard that, I thought about the soul. Mm -hmm. uh, so like a person is a twin to herself or himself. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess you have thought about the answer to the question, so where is the soul of the, another DNA? So do you have any answer to that? I don't think the DNA would carry any, anything like a soul. I think that's the answer for that. So uh, what Joseph's referring to is there's a natural, there's a, in a very small number of human patients, we realize that they are a genetic mosaic. They're patches of one genotype, genetic constitution. Other tissues in that same person's body are from another genotype. The person is a single person. So that must mean that... Um, the genetic constitution can't be sufficient to determine uh, individual identity. At the conception, the connection between the egg and the sperm, I, I kind of I personally think that is the beginning of a human, mm -hmm. but it means that uh, two, two sperms and two egg, well, one, actually one egg, two sperms actually coming together and forming two DNAs and becoming one person. So then that, my so that, question that's was... That's possible, or what we normally would call fraternal twins have fused to make a single genetically chimeric individual, like the three mouse embryos. That's the other way that, some, that people think this could happen. So the mechanisms are a little murky okay. there. But, you know, the chimeric mouse case does suggest somehow that you can take three individual organisms and combine them into a single organism, who thereafter is a single organism. So Mike Bertovich, who is at um, uh, Spring Arbor College in Michigan, wrote a book called The Stem Cell Epistles. And he likens this to a situation in the Star Trek spin-off TV show, um, Star Trek Voyager, where they have these transporters that can transport humans great distances. Well, there's a transporter accident in which one of the characters, got a Vulcan named Tuvok, and another guy named Neelix were fused in the transporter accident. And the fused individual was a new, distinct individual. So when, when you kind of use a sci-fi metaphor like that, you can imagine how that might be true, that um, there's injury to all three embryos. They solve it by becoming a single embryo. So uh, I don't know how God thinks about those processes. I'll be quite honest in saying I, I can't answer that. But, um, but I wouldn't say... We, see, there were three embryos to begin with, and then a single embryo later in that mouse experiment. We didn't have zero embryos and then have one big embryo later. We had, we had three embryos. So embryos have a distinct human existence from fertilization. I would still always argue that biologically. But these kind of borderline cases are challenging, I think, for how we think about these things, especially when you think about if you're a dualist, and particular kinds of substance dualism in particular, how, how do you think about what I don't know what happens. Like, you know, I, I don't, um, that St. Thomas would have had a field day with this probably if he knew about this technology. The 21st century is the century of biology. Uh, I think that uh, this is just the start, uh, just what we've seen in the first couple of decades since the mapping of the human genome. Uh, all the more reason why we need to think very carefully about anthropology. So uh, come back tonight, 
to the Bush Center event. Uh, Dr. Uh, Hardin will be speaking again. And what is your topic tonight at 7 o'clock? Um, it's uh, Brave New People, um, Genome Editing, and uh, Humans in Biblical Perspective.